So this morning I thought I was going to speak on a passage from Colossians, but I just couldn't get anything from that rock. Um, So you can put your bulletins down (laughs) and listen up to the lectionary reading, the reading that comes to us weekly. And this is what comes up the first Sunday in Lent every year. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot Against a single stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said to him, All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And the devil left him. And suddenly the angels came and waited on him. May God bless the reading and the hearing of those words. In her best-selling book, The Writing Life, Annie Dillard says, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And what we do with this hour and that hour is what we are doing. So my first reaction to her obvious insight was to say, well, of course. It's obvious, isn't it, how we spend our days is also how we spend our lives. But but when I linger on this 
It sinks into my soul and it actually becomes a little bit unsettling. Our lives race by very quickly. Yet how we spend this day is how we spend the limited time we have. And what we do tomorrow is also how we spend the limited time that we have. Have you ever had that feeling that what you were doing currently is just a little bit of a warm up? For something that is going to be a little more significant at some other point in time? Has it ever occurred to us that one of these days in the future, I will be much more intentional in how I live? And then at that time, I will, I will be more thoughtful. And at that time, I will be more generous. And at that time, I will be much less anxious about things I cannot control and not become so upset by little things of relatively little consequence. Yes, sometime in the future, I will be so much more deliberate in what I am doing with the hours that I have been gifted with. Then I will shed those petty feelings and those unseemly habits. I will pursue a more purposeful path. I will live the life I'm capable of. And I will take my faith in God more seriously. I don't know if you've had that feeling. Maybe you are so anchored in the intention of your life right now in every way. But whether you are or not, this is precisely what Lent is for. A deeper dive. A deeper look. A time for reflection. A time to scrutinize those aspects of our character that we, we might put off to be examined at a later date. But, but what if that isn't true? What, what if the time is now? What if the time were to be today? Because we do all know, particularly in a week like this, that this is not in any way a dress rehearsal. So every year, as I said earlier, um, we're given this exact story the first Sunday of Lent, the temptation of Jesus. The story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but the story is essentially the same. Immediately after he's baptized, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. I think it's important to note here that Jesus didn't want to go into the wilderness. Right? He didn't. He didn't choose to go into the wilderness. 
He wasn't looking to be alone and tempted. But he was driven into the wilderness. That's that's the verb here. And I think that alone is a little bit of a lesson. It's interesting. The wilderness happens. The wilderness is inevitable. Life is full of wilderness moments. Life is full of wilderness seasons. They will come. And like it or not, life will offer up many opportunities for us to feel alone and unsettled and uncertain and vulnerable and afraid. Guaranteed. And in those places, hard, important questions get asked. I remember being on an outward bound trip many years ago in the North Carolina mountains. And for days, we'd been having a blast and we'd been doing rock climbing and canoeing and hiking and camping. And then we came to the finale which was a solo. I don't know if you guys know anything about Outward Bound, but the, the solo is the end. And I was 30 years old, but I was actually a little bit nervous. You know, I was thinking a little bit about the bears and the mountain lions and the coyotes. And Anyway, we were all taken to a remote spot and left by ourselves and We were given a little bit of water and we were given a bag of nuts and a tarp. It was late afternoon and so I scrambled to find a a level spot and set up my tarp for the long night in the woods. And it started to rain. And since it was almost dark, I curled up under the tarp. Man, that was a long night. Wilderness is like that sometimes. Time feels like it slows down. Time feels like it stands still. Replete with a wet sleeping bag and mosquitoes and unfamiliar noises. And that doesn't even take into account the many voices in my head. I was so happy when the morning finally came. The gift of light. And even though I didn't really understand it at the time, something actually changed in me. The simple gift of time. Warmth, sleep, peace of mind. For a brief moment, I wanted to never, ever again take those things for granted. But I want to go back just for a minute to this story because I can tell you it's about so much more than taking things for granted. It's really a story about the countless temptations to reduce life to something less than God intended it. 
The first temptation features bread, a symbol for survival. The second temptation is about power, that nuanced notion that you should be the master of your own fate. And the third temptation is really about prestige. Do whatever you can to be seen in a certain way. And to me, those temptations, even though they're couched in a little bit of a weird way, couldn't be any more relevant. Because in the end, this is a story about all the ways that we fall prey to the temptations of life to become more self-preoccupied than we even know. Worried about our own survival, our own control over things, our own self-image. I think Fred Beekner is really insightful on this topic. He, he writes this, which I hope you'll, you'll reflect on. Our innate temptation is to push everything out and away from the center of our being, even God, until there's nothing left but self. He continues, at the heart of things, it's hard for us to trust God. And it's even harder for us to seek God's will in the daily events of life. He says, in other words, we're not willing to be responsible for our own lives and the life of our communities. Our ultimate sin is a denial of who we are. God's children, beloved, cared for, living in a garden that will sustain us if we care for it and in a community where life will be good and safe and full and rich if we live as children of God. So I, I, I read that and it, it actually had a really deep effect on me, really convicted me. Because I don't know if I seek God's will on a moment by moment, day by day way. I want to. But I'm frequently tempted to do something less. Survive, try to control what I can control. Influence what I can influence. And yet, I'm almost certain that when I consciously ask for God's will in my life, something changes. Are we asking for God's will in our lives. It's not as abstract as we would even think. People, I find people say to me, well, what is God's will? It's not abstract. It's concrete, it's real. Just this week, I I was thinking I had a phone call 
with one of the directors of our schools in Kibera. And she has been unbelievably difficult over the last few months. She's been quite insulting. She has decided it was a good thing to question my integrity. And every single thing in me wanted to cut her off and have absolutely nothing else to do with her. But then she did a funny thing. She reached out to apologize. And I dared to ask myself, well, what is God's will? And it was clear, it was super clear. Super clear. Accept the apology. Extend forgiveness. Make an apology of my own for my own self-righteous attitude. And what did it cost me? Nothing. Costs us nothing to forgive. Or maybe it cost us everything. It was just a moment for me to step out of my wilderness. And those moments come to all of us. And now I'm sitting here thinking about the song that Cookie sang. God bless the child. And Rob reminded us that this is not a sentimental song. Because the driving lyric in there is God bless the child who's got his own. Empty pockets don't ever make the grade. So you know what it is? (laughs) It's about God's will for brothers and sisters who have empty pockets. For brothers and sisters who go to underfunded schools. For brothers and sisters who have infinitely fewer opportunities than those of us who would be gathered in a place like this. And then I started thinking that I should stand in front of all of you and acknowledge my failure to honor and reflect more deeply on Black History Month. Because I've said almost nothing about Black History Month. But there is no American history without black history. And white American history has too often found a way to negate black American history. And then you know what I started thinking? I know it's a scary thought. Two years ago, I was briefly concerned about white privilege and systemic racism. I was made aware two years ago, more than ever before, that my experience of America is dramatically different from brothers and sisters of color who share the same space and the same constitution. But I lost interest. 
I moved on. Stopped thinking about underfunded schools and reactive police and a terribly biased justice system. I confess my sin. So I, I want, I, I want so much to be a person who pays closer attention to God's will. And not just as it affects me, but a version of God's will that affects all of us. Because God's will is never just a personal and private matter. It it is a personal and private matter and an interpersonal matter, but it's also always a corporate and public matter. God's will is life in community. It is a burning desire to create a garden where all of God's children have the same opportunities. A burning desire to fight for those who have been denied by no fault of their own, their God-given rights. You've heard me say this a lot lately. It's not to be negative. It's an attempt to be honest. But I think as a country and as a people, we are living in the wilderness. As much or more than we have in a long, long time. Polarized and divided. Tempted to circle the wagons to protect our own interests. But I want to think, and I want to think with you, and I want to act with you, and I want to acknowledge that the wilderness, this wilderness, is a gift. Kathleen Norris reminds us of this. The wilderness is always an uncomfortable and unnerving place to be, and we yearn to be liberated from it. The wilderness was for Jesus and is for us, though, a liminal space. It is always a time of transition, a time of internal struggle when we stand at the threshold between our former self and our yet-to-be self. The wilderness is a space where we begin to shed ordinary routines and inherited mindsets and begin to see things differently. It is a place where our worldview might be shattered and our priorities turned upside down. It is a chance, once again, to draw closer to the will of God. I hope in this Lenten season that each one of us would ask again daily, what is God's will for your life? It's not abstract. It's very concrete. May it be so. Amen.
します。